This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you're going to the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 286 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I want to say thank you so much to Brooke Carrasco for coming on the show. Now, Brooke is a veteran wildland firefighter who has an incredibly powerful story, and she was a little hesitant to tell it because there's an element of shame about some of the darker chapters, but I disagree 100%. I think there is so much courage in telling a story like that, and it's a story that needs to be heard. None of us are infallible. We all have made mistakes, and what she did with that mistake is nothing short of incredible. So thank you again for your courage, and thank you for stepping up and being the voice for so many people who probably don't have the, the self-confidence to believe that a mistake doesn't own them. So before we get to the interview, like I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, I love reading your comments, and then most importantly, leave a rating. A five-star rating truly does make us more and more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And then take social media, email, word of mouth, and share these episodes. This is a free library for you, the audience, anyone on planet Earth, and each one of these men and women's stories is incredibly powerful. I know it's changing lives out there. So all I ask is you, the audience member, to help me share this project. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Brooke Carrasco. Enjoy. So, Brooke, I want to start by saying thank you so much. I know you were hesitant to come on the show, and I totally understand why, but I'm hoping this is going to just be a, a low-stress walk through you know, your life and then the incredible things that you're doing these days. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, first question, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? So, I am in San Diego, California, native San Diegan. 
Brilliant. Okay, so you said native. So where exactly were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Um, I was born here in San Diego at Scripps La Jolla Hospital. Um, I'm a daughter to two natives as well. Um, my family, my dad was Navy here in San Diego. Um, my mom, his high school sweetheart, very uh, leave it to be her childhood. Um, I have one sister, um, family all around. So very um, typical 80s. Uh, upbringing i would say <laughs> brilliant and then um obviously you became a firefighter at one point so what about athletics were you a sportswoman i was not i had non-suits my whole high school career you have to this was the 90s i was early 90s so think big bangs hairspray um so no i was my sister was the athletic one uh ironically i um would get up early to do, you know, spend an hour on my hair. There was no way I was going to sweat and mess that up. So <laughs> no, very non-athletic. Right. Well, okay. Then through the, the school journey, did you have any career aspirations specifically at that point? You know, I always pictured myself um, single, never getting married, in a New York penthouse, in a business suit, running some... I don't even know what I thought I was going to do, but I just wanted to be that strong, like woman in a pinstripe suit, you know, calling the shots. <laughs> and what do you think the 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 reason was behind that that you saw yourself as a as an independent woman, you know, obviously taking care of yourself? Um, I think it comes from well, yeah, I can tell you exactly who it comes from. It comes from Scarlett O'Hara. Um, I saw that movie when I was. I don't know, 10 or 11 years old and just absolutely fell in love with that character. And um, I, I watched that. It was on VHS back then. I watched it so much. I, I broke the ribbon. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just really, I can't even say I identified with her because, you know, I'm 11. What troubles have I seen? But um, I just really wanted to be her. She was beautiful and strong and a survivor. And I just, I wanted, I wanted to be the modern day her. Yeah, that was a hell of a hell of a movie. Um, all right then. So so you kinda of led us up to the, the kind of high school level. So yeah, I, I I know that you then found yourself kind of with the wrong crowd at some point. Walk me through the journey from, you know, watching Gone with the Wind and doing your hair to to where it kind of started to turn. Well, I mean, we gotta kinda of go back. Um, like I said, I had a very, you know, Leave it to Beaver upbringing. Um, my parents, you know, were married. Divorce wasn't the big thing it is today. Um, I grew up very middle class. I'd say, you know, my grandparents helped my parents send us to Catholic school. Um, just, you know, didn't, we weren't well off by any means, but, um, you know, my, my parents grew up pretty poor, so they knew how to save money and they didn't overspend. And in as kids, we didn't, we didn't want for anything, you know, we, um, we didn't know what name brands were, but we always had food in the cupboard. There was never any, anything like that going on. And then when I was 13, um, my dad had a stroke and I was, I was the one home alone with him. Um, me and a, and a girlfriend from across the street. And, um, I think that was really the defining moment of my childhood, my, my trauma, as it were, that, that kind of 
changed the course of my my whole life, basically. Um, my father survived. Um, and I remember him going to the hospital and uh, going, you know, kind of being ushered off to my my girlfriend's house while my mom went to the hospital and dealt with all that. And I remember the next morning walking back home across the street and hearing a fire truck. And when I had called 911 to help my dad, that was the first time I'd ever interacted with firefighters or 911 or had any kind of emergency in my life. And I remember hearing that fire truck off in a distance and freezing in the middle of the street, um, wishing it not to turn onto my street, just trying to wish it to go the other way. And no, that fire truck was on its way to my house. My dad had had a second stroke um, and, and it was, it was a big one. So my father survived, um, but he was never the same dad I remembered growing up, you know, growing up, he was the strong, um, workaholic, you know, uh, takes care of his girl's dad. And I, I was for sure daddy's girl. And so from that day forward, that, that man was gone. And now, um, my mom, um, you know, had to go back to work and be the, take care of his, her girls. And my dad was just, you know, he's just never the same, the kind of roles reverse where my mom had to take care of them and him. And, uh, they ended up divorcing, um, a few years later and I became the one who took care of him. So at 16 years old, um, I was now living with my dad and had all the freedoms a 16 year old girl really does not need. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of, of me having too much freedom, not enough supervision, not enough guidance. Um, and, uh, now this daddy girl had daddy issues and I, I fell in the wrong crowd. Yeah. That's something that people don't think about, but to, to have a parent that's physically there, but have some sort of event, you know, whether it's a stroke or something else that, that almost reverses the role so they like you said they were the parent and now you're the caregiver that does um as far as parenting completely change the dynamic and and does have the potential to set set you on a on on an unhealthy path possibly yeah and it's kind of just you know i didn't know who i was anymore i kind of lost my identity that i didn't even know i was developing you know that's just such the wrong age 13 to 16 for any child, any adolescent to, um, to struggle with, with something like that, let alone, you know, have the freedoms to make your own choices. They, I, I don't know about other kids. I did not make the right choices. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, a choice is exactly that. And and it depends on what options are presented with you. And if you're surrounded by people with good intentions, then, you know, you may be okay with that scenario. But if you find yourself around people with less than good intentions, then again, who's protecting you and and pulling you from being dragged in the wrong direction? Yeah, and that's, that's exactly what happened. Right. So then so then tell me about that. So I had met up with, I started hanging out with one of my older cousins and I had met her friends and, um, buddied up with, with a girl just, you know, I was 18, 19 years old and, um, it was all about, you know, being young and dumb and partying and I was completely out of my element. I was in a part of town now that I'd never gone to, um, 
I was, you know, I, I don't really know what it was. It was, if it was too much freedom, if it was me running away from, um, you know, what I had going on at home as far as having to be responsible and take care of my dad. And, you know, I was just, it was too much for me at the time, I guess. And I just, I met, um, this young man who, uh, was an absolute bad boy. And, uh, I just, I fell fast and hard. He was gorgeous and he had that edge to him and he was actually a lot worse than I knew at the time, but being so young and so naive and, um, having what I had going on at home, I just, I, I fell and I fell hard. And when it turned out he was, um, when it came to light, how much of a bad guy he was, um, and he was arrested and I was arrested along with him, um, for a slew of, you know, things he had activity wise going on that I didn't know about. Um, 19 year old me was like, well, I'm not, I love him. I'm not telling. And that, that kind of started me down the, the path of being on the wrong side of the law. And so I did not, um, give the police the information they wanted on him. And so I went to jail right along with him. Wow. Now, just again, reverse engineering him. Do you now, knowing what you know with trauma and the mental health side, retroactively look at his environment, his upbringing, and, and see any any reasons why he was also on the on the bad path? You know, when I look, I mean, and this was just you know twenty miles from my house, but it was definitely the other side of the tracks. When I look back at like the people I befriended there and met, they were, they were good people. They just had a completely different um, idea of right and wrong. And I think wrong became so normal to them or a necessity, even, you know, stealing a loaf of bread. If you got to feed your kids is completely okay in, in that community. Or, you know, I think it starts there. So kids see the, their, their parents struggle and, and the things they do to, put food on the table, whether it's selling drugs or selling themselves or stealing or, you know, whatever it is. And it just becomes normal and it becomes okay. And I think that's kind of what um, the people I met and him also, um, they, it just, the lines get so blurred. You, you forget, like you forget that there is a right and there is a wrong and, you know, the society is the society that we look at isn't necessarily the same 10 miles down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you know, as a firefighter, we get to see that. I mean, my, my first you, um, two departments ago literally had the train tracks down the middle of our first you and the, I think it was the east of the train tracks. Is that right? No, the west of the train tracks was just a really, really poor, desperate, violent part of town. And then to the right was, you know, famous sports stars, million dollar homes on a lake. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny as a first responder, we do get to see the spectrum of, you know, socioeconomic um, upbringings that these people are in. And some of them are set up for failure and many of them, you know, set up for success. And it all depends on not just the poverty around them, but the, the parenting and the engagement of the people that, that raise them. Yeah, you know, you can... It's still the the big debate about um, you know is it upbringing or is it 
you know, what we're born with. And, and I have it, you know, why can two kids from the same poor family, one grow up to be a superstar and one grow up or a, a you know, Harvard graduate and one grow up to be in prison. And, um, if they were raised in the same home and yeah, it's, I, I think it's a bunch of minor little that seem like minor encounters in your life that really, you know, put a stamp on you and, and in the end guide you one way or the other. And you don't even realize them when they're happening, but you know, when you get later on in life and you look back and go, Oh, that's, that was where I learned, you know, about Scarlett O'Hara. I never, you know, 12 year old me didn't know that was happening, but 40 year old me. Okay. 45 year old me definitely can see the impact. So yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, no, it is. All right. So then back to, to, to that moment though. So it was the fact that you wouldn't tell the the law enforcement community about, you know, what your boyfriend had done. That was the reason you were arrested? That was my arrest. I went to county jail for that. Um, you know, as my first arrest, I was 19. Um, they, I, I did six months in jail um, and went on probation. And, you know, I my people talk about rock bottom that evidently was not rock bottom for me. Um, I got home and went right back to the same friends. And, you know, now everyone now is a bit of a celebrity there because I didn't tell, I didn't snitch. Um, you know, I took it, took one for the team. Um, and you know, went back to, to the partying ways. And, uh, I was getting a ride home one night um, probably not even, a, I don't know, month or two later. Um, and we got pulled over for a broken taillight and, um, the, it was a truck and one of the people in the truck, it was me and two, two guys. Um, one of them had a duffel bag in the trunk of the, uh, in the bed of the truck and it had drugs and a gun and, you know, all his belongings, his clothes, his shoes, but because I was on probation, um, once again, I was arrested right along with them. And um, this time I did learn, nope, not gonna, not gonna go down for somebody else again. And I, you know, I took it to trial and um, perceptions being what they were, uh, the jury did not believe I didn't know about any of that stuff. They thought um, ironically, the guy whose stuff it all was, um, his case got thrown out because of some typo on his paperwork or something. And he even came and testified for me, but um, nobody believed him either. They were like, oh, he's just there covering up for his friend. Um, and so I I was sentenced to prison. Wow. Now, just going back for a second before we, we talk about prison, um, you were the caregiver for your father. Then you, you were in jail for six months, you know. How how was that for him? And then obviously, how was that for you as far as the, the feeling of guilt not being able to be there for him? Yeah, my um, luckily for me, my mom and my dad, um, they didn't divorce because of, you know, any hatred or animosity or um, it was really just my dad's brain injury and um, the recovery he needed to go through um, and and they, she was still very close. Um, she was in the house we grew up in. We were in apartments, you know, a couple miles away. So my mom and my little sister took care of him and actually brought him to see me every weekend. 
Um, so even again, once again, I, even in jail, I was not the typical, I wasn't in the same boat as most of the, the women there. You know, I had family, I had, you know, money on my books. I had visits every week. I had phone calls every night. Um, so, but yeah, the guilt, the guilt, um, the guilt was always, always with me. You know, it's my daddy. Yeah. No, I just can't imagine it'd be hard. And like you said, you, at that point, you thought you were doing the right thing, you know, the code of the streets. And, um, that must've been rough because ultimately you were taken away from your family. Yeah, it was a real eye opener. Um, not a big enough eye opener evidently, but, um, you know, and I came out with the same, you know, by <laughs> night three in, in a prison or in a jail cell, um, you know, it's like, Oh, I'm never doing this again. I, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to college. Um, and that just, I, I don't know if it was a maturity thing or a lack of, I don't know if it's pride or I, I really can't say why I didn't follow through with that, but I did not. Okay. So the second time when you actually went to, to prison this time, um, Walk me through that, and then and then how uh, you know fire camp was presented. Well, again, um, you know, as luck or higher power or God, as I call him, was was looking out for me because I didn't actually go to prison um, for any length of time. I went and was processed, and then that was basically it. I the judge. Um, listened to, looked at my situation. He listened to, um, requests from my family that to keep me local because of my disabled father. Um, and I was, I was sent to fire camp right, right, right away. So I was lucky enough to, um, stay in San Diego at one of our, our women's fire camps. Right. Well, I mean, firstly, that's fantastic. And I think, again, that's like you said, a testimony that even if, you know, uh, uh, a son or a daughter does find themselves in a prison that there's still, you know, obviously a lot that we can do as parents on the outside, at least advocating for them. Yes. Yeah. So I think for the next step really would be if you want to just kind of paint the picture of, of what fire camp is, you know, um, what the, the prisoners do and then obviously the, the wages, cause that's important as well. Well, mind you, this was, 20 years ago. So I think, I, I don't know how much it's changed um, since then, but fire camp, there's three women's fire camps in California. All of them are here in Southern California, two of them in San Diego. Um, and the one I was sent to is on a hill in North County of San Diego. Um, there's no gates, there's no bars. It's It looks like Girl Scout camp or Boy Scout camp, I imagine. Um, it's a bunch of, you know, buildings and, and, uh, hiking trails and running tracks, um, a kitchen off, you know, to the side and then the firefighter side of, you know, the different apparatus and at bays and, um, training areas. So in fire camp, you, um, you get assigned to a crew or if there's some people even go, um, and they get assigned to like kitchen duty or yard maintenance or, you know, stuff like that so, or clerical. Um, usually the older inmates get those jobs or, you know, with disabilities or whatnot. But um, I was put on a crew 
And um, your day-to-day is you wake up, you go do do your work. So it's either, um, usually it's off-site jobs where you're either maintaining, I don't know, you could be maintaining fire stations. This is CAL FIRE, back then CDF. So we could find ourselves you know, doing the yard work at one of the fire stations or maintaining trails on different um, county trail sites or over at the beach, maintaining, you know, the state um, beach areas, the campsites there. Um, Really just a wide range of stuff we found ourselves doing. And then we get, we respond to emergency events. Um, We respond to uh, brush fires, wildland fires up and down the state. Um, when I was there, El Nino came. So there was a few months where I was traveling the state in, you know, a, what we called a duck suit pounding rebar into, um, aqueducts to kind of guide which way the water went. Um, pay back then was, gosh, I don't remember what I got paid a day being on crew. It was cents like maybe 13 cents I don't I don't even really remember but I do remember when that bell rang as soon as you crossed the line you got paid a dollar um for being assigned to an emergency and I I think we got a dollar a day all right well so when you, know, you first joined the fire camp so tell me what the training was like like how did they prepare you guys to be able to respond so when you are selected for camp Um, it's based on a point system, your age, your sentence time, your education, um, all inmates are go through processing and they're assigned a certain amount of points and you can only have a certain amount of points to qualify for camp. So everyone there is low risk. Um, you know, they're, they're not violent offenders. Um, and generally most of us are pretty young. I think, well, no, I was the youngest. You know, women in their 30s, I would say. Um, And you go through, you get sent to CIW, which is um, the women, one of the women's prisons in Southern California. And there's a training program there specifically with CDF. And they start the training, the physical training um, to become a a firefighter, an inmate firefighter. So it's... um, a lot of like running and agility and, and testing of that such. And once you pass the physical testing, you start um, the job testing or the job training and you you go learn about cutting line and what the different tools are, um, you know, the different, you know, fire shelters and our gear. And you take a test there that I, I don't remember how long that training is. It's a couple months. Um, and then once you pass that, you're assigned to a camp, and then you're, you're off of prison completely, and you're in a camp system now. So once assigned, um, I mean, every crew kind of is ran however the captain sees fit, but once you're assigned to a crew, um, it's hiking every day, it's you know morning exercises every day, um, Pretty similar to when you're assigned to a fire station. You know, you you wake up, you do your PT, you have your goals for the day, your jobs for the day, and you're kind of just doing that until an emergency comes. Brilliant. And you see, again, that that just makes so much sense. I've seen, I've had a 
the governor of a prison in Norway and, and in their prisons, they're all, you know, they all have jobs and they're all learning traits. So, you know, the goal is when they walk out the gates that they won't return, you know, they'll, they'll set them up for success to be functioning members of society. And, you know, you, you hear of chain gangs as obviously there's an awful example in Arizona of that, that one sheriff that's humiliated all the drug dealers, excuse me, the drug users, the addicts, um, with hard labor and all chained together. Um, this to me seems a polar opposite. So yes, it's obviously a grind. You're out there working, but in prison, they gave you a, an incredible profession that most people listening are a part of. And what a great way to set these men and women up for when they walk out to have a, a career they can do the rest of their life. Yeah, when I walked in there, you know, I was, I think by the time I got there, I was 21. Um, I had never worked a day in my life, not certainly not to that level of physicality. Um, but not only that, I didn't know, you know, I didn't have any real self-worth. I didn't know what I was capable of. Um, I didn't know how to work on a team. Um, I was just, you know, a, a spoiled 21 year old who um, didn't know, didn't know what I was supposed to do with life, let alone what I was supposed to do there. Um, but you're, you know, to their credit, those captains <laughs> that at least for me, they, they whipped me into shape real quick. You know, I real quick learned um, not only what was expected of me, but what I was capable of. And it, once that kicked in, there was no stopping me. I was like, Oh, this is who I'm supposed to. Oh, you know, it was that Scarlett O'Hara again. Oh, this is how she did it. You know, I, I, I discovered who Brooke was beyond friends that were telling me this or that, this was right. This was wrong. This is what you should do. Um, beyond school telling me, you know, pass this test, go to this school. Now this was real life. Um, Brooke, this is what's in front of you. This is what needs to be done. And you know what? You can do it. And, and I, I never had felt that sense of self, sense of pride and um, self-worth ever, I don't think. Yeah, I bet you never envisioned Scarlett O'Hara would actually be wearing brush gear in reality. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. No, certainly not. Brilliant. All right. Well, then, just, just as, as a you know, other question, uh, tangent, how were you guys, your, your crews received by the other crews on the mountain when you were on fires? Was there any kind of prejudice? I mean, obviously, there's always banter between the emergency services, but did you encounter any kind of negative experiences or were you usually seen as another crew? Um, we're told, and this just goes to the power of words, we, my crew, my camp, we were told over and over again, you, you're a firefighter. When you're out there, you're you're putting forth the same effort to stop this fire or to save this home or to help these, you know, citizens um, as everyone in yellow is. Because we were, if you've ever seen on the news or um, looked at a California wildfire, that the guy, the guys and gals in orange are the inmates, and the yellow um, are the paid firefighters. But um, we were told. Right, you know, from day one, no, you're a firefighter, and you will you will act as such. And there's something pretty powerful in that, you know. You're not you're not being told, hey, inmate, get up there, you know, do the dirty work that nobody else wants to do. You're you're told, hey, this is we need this, we need you, and we need you to be at your best. And this is helping us 
you know, we're a team saving, saving whatever it is we're, we're working on. So um, it's very empowering. I love that. And it's the way it should be. I mean, I would say that most of us in any fire department or hand crew or, you know, any other group of emergency services could look back at our 20, 30, 40 year lifespan and go, you know what? I honestly could have been arrested for that. Just no one caught me. You know, I, I know I have. I'll tell you that right now. So, you know, I, I think that's, that's fantastic that they are taking that element out. It's, it's irrelevant. Of course, you know, you don't have your freedom. You can't just walk out and go home. But aside from that, you know, to, to, to constantly be berating people or, you know, especially shaming them for, you know, whatever, especially if it's things like addiction. I mean, that, how is that ever going to make the situation better? How is that going to you know, cause rehabilitation? It's not. And I love, you know, when I read your story, I thought this was exactly how we need to model many other areas in, in our prison systems too, is they made a mistake. So you took their freedom. Now let's focus on getting them back where they can thrive once they walk out the doors. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why do one, you know, nine out of 10 go back? Well, there's, I, I think that's where the answer lies because nine out of 10 um, weren't told they could do more, that they, they were capable of more. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, then there was one very significant fire that you guys did deploy to. So um, tell me about the day, you know, in, in the Harris fire and the kind of the events that occurred. Yeah. So fast forward um, eight years. I, I was released from fire camp in 99. Um, from there, I, you know, I, I came home a completely different person, or I should say the person I was supposed to be, um, maybe even just a bit improved. Um, there was no way I was going back, like lesson learned. I, the skills, the, the people I saw, the, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I knew how to get there. I had amazing captains, um, from camp that, that saw that in me and, um, helped me. And, um, you know, I was all set to go to a fire academy and go back to school. Um, and then, you know, life being life, I, um, met my, uh, at the time was going to be soon to be husband. I met a young Marine, um, and, and we had a daughter pretty quickly. So everything kind of went on hold, but it didn't derail me. Like, you know, like I said, I knew who I was and what I wanted. And, um, I spent that time, um, going, I went back to school and I was getting my EMT and I was taking the fire classes that, um, our local community college offers. And, um, even with a, a two-year-old, I ended up, um, getting hired by Cal Fire, um, as a seasonal. And uh, fast forward, that ended up being my career. Um, and fast forward to 2007, and my crew and I, um, you know, now I'm on the jobs, five years, six years, and uh, we responded to um, was which was going to turn out to be the second set of wildfires San Diego County experienced. Uh, the first being 2003. This was the two, 2007. San Diego wildfires that um, were so devastating to to San Diego. Right. So just before we talk about you know the the, the rescue, um, when you were trying to get hired by CDF, what factor did your criminal record play, and how were you able to overcome that? 
Well, lucky for me, <laughs> Cal Fire, uh, then CDF. Um, obviously, CDF is in charge of the camp program or along with corrections runs the camp program. So just like in camp, I was a firefighter. Um, once I was home, that that time on camp was a benefit on my application. I've, I, I have handlined experience, years of it, um, to my name. So it actually boosted me in the scoring process. And then on top of that, because I went to school and I got my EMT and my hazmat certifications um, while I was you know, pregnant and with a one-year-old, um, those were all benefits for, for me. Now, it's not the same. Um, city departments don't look at that as a benefit. Um, it's going to, I think federal and state um, are the only ones who um, take that as a positive, but it's, it's completely opposite in the municipal world, in, in the city, city government uh, departments. Yeah, well, I think there's a lesson to be learned there too. And I had um, Brenda McDonough on, and it was the same kind of thing in Prescott, Arizona, where he was given a chance. He had, you know, a criminal record as well, um, and was, you know, battling addiction at the time. But you know, say you come out, you'd fought all those years as a firefighter, but then when you walked out the doors, all the doors slammed shut. Well, now what's left for you? Probably, you know, uh, um, employment-wise, probably avenues that may not have felt like you know empowering to you again and may have even led you down the wrong path and that's something i think that we need to look at more closely if cdf can do it if the state can do it then why can't other agencies have that where you know of course if you're you know a sexual predator you're not going to go get a job in a preschool i mean you've got to use common sense but yeah i mean if, if it's these minor things are we again setting these people up for failure to get back on the straight and narrow because they've got this red flag on their name Especially when you're so, you know, empowered and you're told, you know, all this, how great what you're doing is for your state and your community and these people. Um, and it really, you know, boosts up your confidence to have that yanked away from you um, in the general public or in, you know, you know, another fire department or um, that's. Yeah, that it's hard. It's it's why I was hesitant to come on your show because even 20 years later and all that I've accomplished, um, it's still something I try and distance myself from. That one piece of you know my timeline um, still closes a lot of doors for me. I mean, there were years I my daughter was like, "Mommy, why why don't you volunteer at the school or why can't you be my Girl Scout leader?" And it's, you know, because I was afraid to fill out that application and get that background check. And I didn't want to, the stigma is so great um, that I, I started believing, you know, I needed to hide it. Like, I can't, don't tell anybody because that's all they're going to see about you. They're not going to see, you know, all your volunteer hours or what you're trying to do for your daughter or um, they're just going to be like, oh, no, you know, we have a, an inmate here. <laughs> And, and that's what I was going to be. And I didn't want that title. I didn't want that to tarnish what I was trying to accomplish um, with my life. And it, it wasn't something I identified with anymore. It wasn't who I was. Um, I don't recognize that person. My life was, you know, so completely different. And on the path I wanted it on, you know, I was trying to get away from it myself. So, um, yeah, with people that don't have the support or don't have 
um, the resources to still go down where they want to go. Um, I can completely see how that would derail, you know, like, well, what's the point? If everyone thinks I'm a bad guy, I might as well go be a bad guy. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. Well, so quite the opposite happened, though. So back to the fa- the Harris fire, um, you guys were deployed to um, a family that was sheltering in place. Yeah, so this was the first fire of what turned out to be, you know, three or four major fires at the same time, wind-driven fires. Um, we were made part of a strike team and headed to South County. Um, and when we got there, um, the need was so great. We didn't even have time to meet up with our strike team. And we, we started trying to save homes and, um, long story short, we were told about, um, a father and son, um, that were sheltering in place and then possibly some of his family on a neighboring property and um, that's that's where we ended up going to try and, and try and evacuate. Right. So then, you know, when you get there, um, you know, what what were the conditions, and and you know, what were the the uh, circumstances that led to you guys having to shelter yourself? Well, we um, we ended up running into the father and son on the road to their property, um, and conditions were. You know, we could see the fire across the ridge from us, so we thought we were okay. Um, they had, and then conditions, I, the wind shifted and con- conditions deteriorated pretty quickly for us. We ended up in smoke, um, some pretty significant smoke, and then we ran into the father and son who had evidently um, followed us on their ATV, and it had died because of the smoke. And so they ended up jumping in the engine with us and we drove onto their property and we were kind of down in a canyon. So when we came up out of the canyon onto their property, it was actually pretty clear skies. And they were, you know, I remember they were so excited, their property, their home was still there. Um, and we were like, okay, we, we got through this. Um, we had gotten out of the engine. We'd advised them to stay in the engine and we got out and we were going to check out their house and make sure everything was Okay. And, um, from the amount of time it took us to, to pull the hose and, and surround their home and do what we call eye zone. Um, by the time we got to the back of the house, we thought that wasn't the case at all. And the fire was coming up the Canyon. And at the time I thought they had a deck that was on fire or I, I thought their house was on stilts or something. And it turned out to be a, now I know it was like a deck, I guess that was on fire. Um, and their whole, my captain and my other partner on the other side of the home saw that their whole living room was fully engulfed already. And um, simultaneously, me and my partner and my captain and, and our, our other crew member um, saw that we weren't going to save this home and we made the decision to get back to the engine. Yeah. So Once, I'm sorry, carry on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we got back to the engine. Um, and as you know, for a firefighter, you know, our, our engine's one of our safety zones. It's our, it's our egress. Um, so I remember getting up into the engine. I was in the front seat and um, kind of unbuckling my, my chest harness and pulling down my, my um, I had on a face shield um, for the smoke. I pulled that down and kind of took a breath, like, okay, let's get out of here. Like, we got to go. And um we quickly discovered we, we weren't, we weren't going to get out of there. The engine, um, 
was stuck on something. Um, my captain kept putting it in, you know, forward, reverse, forward, reverse, and we just weren't going anywhere. And it was getting hotter and it was getting darker and um, it was getting really, really smoky so much so that we couldn't even see the home anymore. And things went quickly from let's get out of here to, oh, crap, now what? Yeah, so, so um, you know, what? because I know you talk about, you know, basically running through the flames. So walk me through that. You're in the sh- in the engine. You know, initially it's supposed to be hopefully a safe place of shelter, but there's going to be that point where you realize it's not a safe place of shelter anymore. So what what was that decision like? And and you know what what made you run that particular direction? Yeah, we, we got in the engine with with every thought of getting the heck out of Dodge. Um, I mean, it, it in my memories it's very slow motion and probably you know like minutes and it was probably seconds that all this occurred but um I I remember seeing how the red glow and you know seeing the fire just tear through the the home um and I started reaching for for the mic of our of our engine to call for help and I remember like slow motion reaching for it and looking at my captain, like waiting for him to yell at me. Like, you know, he was an old, old school captain. You didn't, you didn't touch his radio. Like that was his radio. This was his engine. So as I reached for it, you know, I was waiting for him to say, Hey junior, what are you doing? Like, and, and he didn't. And, you know, I looked at his face and I just saw him forward, reverse, forward, reverse. Um, and then the next series of events all kind of, happened so quickly he called for somebody to jump out and see why we couldn't get out of there and I remember looking at at the firefighter sitting behind him who was brand new like four months on the job and kind of looking at him and looking at my partner behind me who had in you know six seven seasons also and like uh uh-uh don't go (laughs) don't conditions were bad um and he jumped out and I remember um reaching for the radio and then making the call for help. And as I was calling for help, um, the, the fire hit the engine and it, it blew the windows. And, uh, yeah, I just, I listened back. I just recently listened back to my emergency traffic call and it's, it's nothing like I remembered. Um, but the screams, the screams in it were, were exactly from my, my nightmares. Um, we, now we're sitting in an engine with fire coming in the windows, fire blowing over the engine, uh, fire going under the engine. Even looking out, you know, I'm in the passenger seat. If you look out the driver's seat, it's just a wall of fire. So um, other than get out, I, I mean, it was a lot of screaming and a lot of yelling um, that I kind of don't even really remember. Um, I just remember thinking I need to, I remember sinking in my seat thinking I'm going to can't believe I'm going to die in a, my fire truck right now. And then seeing my daughter's face, who was seven at the time, and just as quickly thinking, no, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm getting the heck out of this fire truck. And I remember like yelling at my captain, go, go, get out. And I think we were all yelling the same thing. And one by one, we had to make the decision um, to either sit there and burn to death or jump into the fire and hope for the best. I remember watching, 
you know, my cat and the winds are blowing. I mean, they're really, really blowing. Um, if you've ever seen a, a Santa Ana fire or wind driven fire, because they couldn't even get the doors open. And no sooner that they jumped out, the wind, you know, the wind was slamming the doors right on us. And uh, I remember watching my captain disappear, watching my coworker disappear, watching the son disappear. And it's just me and the father left because we're in the two passenger seats closest to the, the windows that had just blown. And I remember making eye contact with him and I don't, I don't really remember saying anything to him, but just kind of giving him that look like it's okay, it's our turn. And I, I climbed over the seat and opened the door and jumped out. I don't, I don't remember having a conscious thought of which way to go because you couldn't see anything. It was just a wall of fire you were jumping into. Um, I don't remember seeing which way he went. Um, I just, I just jumped and I ran. I just can't imagine, you know, having to make that decision. And, you know, we're, we're taught about shelters. That's our go-to, you know, emergency you know, plan B. And I had a, a great conversation with a fireman recently talking about why they don't even work. Like he, he's in the technology industry as well as being a, a smoke jumper. And, um, and, you know, he, he said, like in, in our labs, we prove that they, they don't work in a lot of these burnovers anyway, but, to to make the decision to run through a wall of fire i mean you know i can't even imagine what you went through in that moment in your mind yeah and i've had um you know i've had a lot of years to try and and reflect on it and remember it and retell the story gosh i don't know how many times i've retold the story um and it's just it's very this is where hollywood gets it right it's very slow motion it's very foggy you know, the kind of the background noise quiets and, you know, that fight or flight kicks in and, and your heart rate slows and you just, it, it feels like you have all the time in the world to, to think what you need to do when it's really just seconds. Um, and I remember thinking, I, I gotta get, I gotta, I gotta get out of here for one. Cause I'm on, you know, I'm burning. Um, but I got to get home to my little girl. Like this isn't, this isn't the end of my story. This isn't what it's supposed, this isn't supposed to be happening right now. And, um, yeah, I, I, I jumped and I ran and I ran and I ran and I, I think I took a big breath. Oh, I must have. I took a deep breath and I ran and, um, you know, I was told later my captain and fellow crew member saw me and I fell and I got up and I ran some more. Um, cause they could see me from where they ended up. And then I just remember it was so loud, like, like a train just roaring through and it was so dark and so hot. And then all of a sudden it wasn't, and it was silent and it was cool. And I kind of slowly opened my eyes like one eye at a time. And, uh, I, I saw blue skies. I was, I was staring at Mexico and it was, completely blue skies. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I made it. And I turned around and I saw a hundred yards away, my, my burning fire engine. And I was like, wow, I got pretty far too. And just the irony of, of the, you know, the hot and the cold and the loud and the quiet and the conflicting, it, it was a lot to process in that moment. And, and then I, those, I mean, those are probably seconds, thought, you know, seconds of thoughts. 
um, that seemed like when I replay it in my head, it was like a whole conversation. You'd probably shoot five minutes of film on it. Um, but it was seconds because seconds later, I went, ooh, I hurt. I hurt. I'm alive, but I hurt. Um, and I went into survival mode and I started pouring all my water on myself and trying to, you know, put out my my burns. And um, I even remember grabbing my shelter. When you talk about the shelters, because we're trained, you know, your fire shelter is your safety, but it's a last resort. Resort like don't go in that shelter. Don't pull that shelter because there's somebody's going to have to write a report and you're going to have to explain yourself unless you absolutely need it. I remember starting to frantically grab for it and then thinking, oh, wait, the fire's over there now. Do, do I really need it? Am I going to get in trouble? Just these random thoughts that go through your head. Um, and then I remember, and then I, I realized I was alone. I was like, wait, where's everybody else? And I had the thought that I was the only one that made it. And that started, um, and then the pain really started kicking in and, you know, the adrenaline was running out and um, I, I started to go into shock. And I, I, I remember thinking then just the sadness of being the only survivor and what am I going to do? I don't have a radio and kind of, you know, shock was, was really kicking in. And then I heard a scream and it was the worst scream. I've ever heard in my life and it caught my attention and I, I turned and I looked and I saw this young boy. I mean, he was 14, I think at the time, the son um, walking towards me and he had his arms up um, and the skin, I mean, not to get too graphic, but you know, skin was hanging off of him and he was walking towards me and he was screaming for his dad. And, um, I I instantly went from patient back to firefighter and it, I've told him since then you know you you saved my life that day just as much as I helped you you helped me because you snapped me out of shock and I had a job to do and I had a patient and by god I was going to do it and so I went back into firefighter mode I went into EMT mode and and my job I even you know I want to say I went into parent mode this kid needed my help um and and that's what I focused on and I grabbed him and I put him under my shelter and I held on to him and the shelter. I knew I got us in the shelter more for protection from the elements because we were in like a rock outcropping and there was like a lot of um, little pieces of rock and sand hitting us and we were both burned and I knew if it was hurting me and I still had all my gear on minus my helmet I lost. Um, I knew he was, it was really hurting him. So I wanted to just protect him from that. And so I threw the shelter over us. I sat us on a rock and I held him with one arm and I held the shelter with my foot and my other arm. And um, I, I just wanted to keep him safe. And he was, you know, yelling for his dad and asking if we were going to die. And um, I, I don't know that I believed it myself, but I told him, no, we made it. We're going to be okay. They're going to find us. Um, and then I, I heard the helicopters and I was like, listen, they're trying to find us. We're going to be okay. Fast forward. Um, he had gone out the engine with my other crew, with my captain and my other crew member. And I didn't know it. And they had actually seen me from where they had landed. And 
we were missing the firefighter that had jumped out. And so they went to go search for the other firefighter and they had sent him to me. I didn't know that till weeks later after the hospital. But um, so he had he had been sent to me to get to, to look after. Um, and so once things from there kind of just blur, um, my captain had called me and I heard him. And so I got us out of the shelter and we all regrouped together. And then um, we didn't know where Andrew was, the firefighter that had gotten out originally, but uh, my captain still had his radio. Um, one of the forest service pilots did an amazing, amazing rescue um, and were guided to us by, you know, the aircraft we had, Cal Fire had, um, that knew our last position and, and touched down on this. It was very, again, Hollywood, like, you know, he, there was power lines, there were wind, there was smoke and he landed this bird on one skid on this big rock and, and got us out of there. Amazing. Now, at what point did you realize that tragically the young man's father hadn't made it? You know, I think I knew it. I didn't officially know it till I woke up from a coma a few weeks later. Um, but I knew it in the shelter. I knew as a parent that the mere fact that I didn't hear that man screaming for his son, um, I, I knew he was gone. There was... as as a mom, that that's what I would have been doing. I, I don't care how hurt I was. I would have been screaming for my child. So I think I knew, I knew early on um, that his dad was gone. And that's, I just, I kind of just wanted to protect him from that knowledge. You know, he was asking, like, he was like, let's go find my dad. Let's, let's get to my uncle's property. It's right next door. And I just held on. I was like, no, let's just take this minute safe in the shelter and just, just be here because what's out there is going to be so much more painful. Yeah. Well, you mentioned about a coma. So, so walk me through firstly the, the physical journey that you had from your injuries after that. Um, I was, so from there we were um, flown to the fire station that wasn't too far away. Um, we were, taken into the at bay and um, at least three different paramedics were there or pulling up ready to triage us. Um, it was the four of us, three firefighters and, and the young, the young man. And it was, um, you know, a lot of pulling gear off and checking burns. And I just remember all the commotion and thinking, this is what I do. This isn't what's done to me. This is so weird. Like this is just so surreal. Um, and I don't know if it was the morphine they put in, but I just kind of sat back and watched the show. Um, not really realizing it was me or how serious it was. Um, my biggest concern at that time wasn't, I mean, it, I was in pain, but it, it wasn't, I think adrenaline still was protecting me from that or, you know, the fight or flight was still protecting me from that. Um, I was more worried about my crew member that was missing. I, w I was fairly certain he was dead as well. Um, and I 
I was kind of having the same thought, like, I'm okay. Like, why, why all this fuss? Like, it's not that bad. Um, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to get checked out. This is a big fire. I'm going to, you know, it's going to be going for a while. I'll, you know, I might get a couple days off. I'll be back. I'll get some overtime out of this. You know, that's as seasonals. That's how we make our money is, is overtime on fires. So that's still what I was thinking. Like I was still in day-to-day mode. Like, oh, I got to get back and make that money on this fire. Um, no idea that, you know, in a couple hours I was going to be in an induced coma. Like, no. If you would have told me that in that app, I'd be like, you're tripping. No, I'm fine. <laughs> so they're no. worried about your airway. Is that right? Yeah. So what ended up happening is I started losing my airway. That big breath I took before some, you know, while I was either in the engine or, jumping out. Um, the worst of my burns were actually inhalation burns. I'd burned my lungs and, um, there were a lot, this was, this fire was down on the border. So there was a lot of, um, international travelers that were caught in this fire. Um, there were a lot of burn victims. Uh, you know, and this is just a few hours into what was, you know, I think now California's third biggest fire now, I think. Um, don't quote me on that. But at the time, uh, it turned into, I think, a, a couple of other big fires started that day or the next day. So um, it was a crazy, overwhelming event for not just the fire service, but, you know, for the hospital. And so I was treated, I wasn't even treated in, in the burn unit. I was downstairs in some trauma bay. Um, and my mom was actually tasked with sitting with me and the firefighter who ended up being found and walking into the at bay. Um, he had made it also. Uh, him and I were sitting there and my mom was actually tasked with kind of just sitting with us while they, the hospital ran around trying to, you know, work through the chaos. And a nurse came in and she, um, as I was talking to uh, Andrew and kind of telling him what we went through and hearing what he went through, um, my voice started getting scratchy and one of the nurses heard it and, you know, I was an EMT for 10 years. You would have thought I knew that was a symptom of, um, you know, swelling of the airway. I didn't. I knew you looked for, you know, sit in the nose or around the mouth, but yeah, I had no idea. I was, um, I was losing my airway and she told me, as good nurses do and good firefighters do, we we kind of sugarcoat things when we're talking to our patients that are in significant trauma. Um, and she's like, you're, you're just going to go to sleep for, for a minute. They just need to stabilize some things. And uh, she knew they were putting me in an induced coma. Um, she didn't use those words. It was just a little nap I was going to take. And that lap, nap lasted, um, I think, 20 days. Amazing. Yeah, I remember seeing a, a a gentleman who he was working on a small engine. I forget what it was like a go kart or something, and and the uh, the gas exploded. And he was like a he looked like a Santa, a big guy with a big beard and everything. It was all singed. And um, I remember it was one of my uh, medic clinicals, I think it was, and he was talking to me just fine. And it was probably about two hours after the event before his airway started closing up and we had to do the same thing. I ended up getting to tube him. But yeah, that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize is there can be a big delay between that inhalation injury and the actual swelling. Yeah. Yeah. It it was about two hours. Yeah. From, by the time, from the time 
the incident happened to the time I was flown to the hospital and sitting in that bay. Yeah. All right. So you come out of the, the coma. What are the, what are the months look like after that as far as the recovery and, and the actual burns on your skin as well? Um, so I was burned um, 10% uh, ear to ear and down my shoulder on my back. Um, and I remember waking up and those, my ear, my right ear, my, my shoulder blade hurt like the dickens. Like I, burns are, oh, they're so painful. I can't even describe to you how painful they are. And they're not just, and this is three weeks later and they hurt. Like that's what I remember waking up to is that pain. Like, wow, this really, really hurts. And mine were second degree. Um, I didn't require skin grafts, which are also super, super painful, I'm told. Um, I had allografts on my face, which is basically like a synthetic skin. So I didn't have to get cadaver skin or my own skin um, placed over my burn, which just acts like a big Band-Aid from what I'm told. Um, so I had to deal with that changing and those cleansings because it started to adhere as it as it heals and you know you got to get scrubbed and it's just oh, it's such a painful process like i look at you know where i am now and and the burn survivors i know and and i see like the significant injuries they have and i just i i burn survivors are the strongest people i think i've ever met in my life because i know what they went through and i know that like minuscule amount that I went through and I look at them and I'm just like, oh, you're, you're amazing. You're Superman. You're Superwoman. I just went to a, a burn camp. They have at the fire Academy here every year. Um, they brought the kids kids and yeah, I mean, you know, all these children, all kinds of backgrounds. I had many, many people on the show that were burn injured as well. And, you know, I just, I can't imagine it. One of my, uh, my guests, Dustin Hawkins described his debrading, you know, when, when he was post burn, um, and he said he was lying on the table and, and I'm paraphrasing now, but something like it, it would take an hour, I guess, for, for the debrading. So you'd look at the, the clock and you try and see the, the positive side, he said, but either, you know, I've got 30 more minutes of, of scrubbing, but then when I get to the 30th minute, it's only 23 hours. So I have to go through this again. And I thought that was just a, a such a poignant way of showing how horrendous that must have been. Mm -hmm. And there's no amount of pain medicine there. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the most painful thing I've ever, I've ever been through. Yeah. Well then what about the, the mental journey? Cause obviously I know now, you know, this is a, an arena that you found yourself in a lot deeper, but what was your journey? Cause you had the, the one life that you saved, you had your own personal trauma and then you had the life that was lost as well. So at the time, um, you know, I just, I don't think I really grasped what I still even then didn't grasp what I'd just been through, what I just survived, the hospital stay. You know, once home, and I don't know if this is the firefighter in me or this is just, well, it, yeah, it probably is the firefighter in me. You know, you go on. You just you just keep going, one foot in front of the other. I don't know if it was Scarlett O'Hara talking to me, but just, you know, keep going. Like, you're fine. You made it. It's done. Like look forward and don't look back. And so my goal at that time was just get back to work. Like I just, 
I, yes, I just been through this thing. And yes, we lost a life and that sucks. Um, but at the time I didn't, you know, I didn't hold that. I didn't have any personal, I didn't feel any personal responsibility other than I wish we could have saved him. I wish we could have saved them both. Um, but you know, I, I, I did my job. I did my best. Um, the circumstances were what they were. Um, you know, so I didn't, I didn't put that on myself. And so I just wanted to get moved forward. And, um, I did go to counseling, you know, PTSD wasn't really talked about in the fire service. It was just starting to come to light, you know, publicly with, with military. Um, my, husband at the time had just gotten back from Iraq, you know, a year earlier. So I kind of knew what PTSD was and I kind of thought maybe he had it from, from serving in in Iraq. Um, but it wasn't really something you gave a whole lot of thought to. Um, you just, you just kept going. So, you know, I saw a counselor, I knew it was okay that I had just been through this traumatic event. It was okay for me to say, Hey, maybe I should see a counselor and I did, um, because I did have um, some pretty significant triggers and um, some real fear associated with what had happened. More I put on my daughter. You know, I had these irrational, what I called my irrational fears, where I would be sitting at home and all of a sudden I would picture her school on fire. And I knew it was an old building and it wasn't sprinklered. So I would rush to the school and pull her out. Like, nope, she needs to be safe with me. So things like that. Um, and so I did get help. I did see a counselor. Um, and what's funny about that is is how many counselors it, or therapists it took me to find the right one. You know, these are things you don't you don't talk about. Like you have in the fire service, we have you know our employee services that help us find somebody, but there's no real process to finding the right person, or or you don't even really talk about it. You kind of like whisper to somebody, Hey, I might need to go talk to somebody. And they whisper back, okay, I'll help you. But it's not like out there. It's not, Hey department, this just happened. Maybe our people need somebody to talk to. And I I remember kind of checking out on my own different psychologists and, and just not finding the right, like the first one I made cry. Like I told that story that I just told you and one cried and one just had that look on their face. Like, Oh my God, that's what firefighters go through. Like they couldn't believe the story I was telling them. Um, part of my coping mechanism is just to kind of brush things off. Like, eh, no big deal. So I wasn't even really processing it myself. And then I found um, a counselor that a psychiatrist who actually was a an army vet, um, and he had been shot down twice in Vietnam, and and he had PTSD. And he completely got me. Like from day one, it was like talking to you, talking to another firefighter, talking to another first responder who who gets it, who gets, you know, us and what we do and why we do what we do and how we cope with it, good or bad. Um, and he told me, hey, this is what happens when I get triggered. This is what I do. And he gave me the skills, you know, I, I you know, breathing techniques or, you know, meditation or whatever it is that worked. Um, and I talked about my triggers and, and I learned how to deal with them and I thought I was fine, you know, okay. I learned that. Cool. Um, I'm good. And let's get back to work. And that's, 
that's what my focus was for the next two years was just get back to work and put it behind me. It's, it's so, uh, I guess sad in one way, but great in another way to hear you say that because I have had that same thing told to me so many times, the EAP horror stories. And again, EAP is obviously there, hopefully for, for a good reason. That's the underlying, you know, reason for it, but it fails people over and over again. And the, I told my story and then my counselor burst into tears. I have heard so many <laughs> times and you're right with the right counselor, you know, more often than not, it needs to be someone who understands our, our, you know, job and has, has taken the time to immerse themselves in it to learn to be the counselor for police, fire, EMS, you know, military, whatever it is. And, you know, there's going to be people out there that are like, I don't want anyone that gets me. I want to talk to someone completely different. And that's you know, the anomaly as well. But now what you're seeing is this push in the fire service, usually from these individuals that have just decided to take it upon themselves. Um, to create these peer systems where they are matching counselors with our profession and then cross-training to the point where you do have these people that are the go-to people now that you don't have to explain, you know, (laughs) you know, the, the things that we've seen. And I think that's so, so important. The more people that tell me what you just told me, the more I realize this is a, you know, national, probably international problem with the tactical community and the, the mental health community. We're certainly a culture under ourselves, and it needs to be looked at that way. You know, cultural psychology is a, is a thing, um, but first responders are a culture unto themselves with our own set of beliefs, system, and values, and and coping mechanisms. Like I said, usually to our long term detriment, but to our short term, you know, they keep us going back to that job every day. They keep us, you know, we go from CPR on a two-year-old to making dinner for the fire station. There's no, there's no counselor there for that. In, you know, in between time, there's no, you know, we might have four more days on duty. You know, we got to get through it somehow. And it's not, you know, you know, it's jokes around the the table. It's however we get through it. It's just how we get through it short term um, that ends up hurting us long term. Yeah. Well, you mentioned then about getting back to the fire service. So you did actually return to work. I did. I made it back to work. Um, let's see. This is October of 07. I, when did I make it back? I want to say the end of 09. Um, I ended up actually, <laughs> ironically, again, um, getting pregnant with my second child while I was on, um, while I was recovering. Um, so I was put on light duty till I had him. And then I had to go through the whole process of, you know, retesting and recertifying and passing my physicals. And, and I did, and I made it, um, you know, a few months after he was born and, uh, I think four shifts in and mind you, this was all like against medical advice. Like my doctors were telling me, you're, you know, you're not 24 anymore. Like when you started, you're 32 now. Um, your body just went through this trauma and I know it's years behind you, but it takes a little (laughs) physically 
you're still not a hundred percent. Yes, we cleared you, but you know, you have this atrophy and muscle loss from the coma you have, you know, I ended up um, hurting my shoulder when I was holding the shelter over, over the sun. And I, I hurt my knee that they, uh, when I said they saw me fall, I ended up bruising my femur, my patella hit each other so hard in that fall that they ended up bruising each other. Um, you know, you've got some significant injuries that are, that have, you know, residual effects. So we don't suggest you go back. We suggest you retire. And that just wasn't an option for me. Like, this is all I knew coming from where I came from, from the young 21 year old fire is all I knew. And it was what empowered me. It's what gave me strength. It's what made people proud of me. Like, no, I'm going back. It's what changed my life for the better, you know, put me on the right road. What else am I going to do? This is all I got. So I'm going back. And four shifts in, I um, rolled my ankle and and broke it in the same leg that was hurt. And um, the state doctor said, nope, you're done. I told you, you're just, you just don't have it anymore physically. And that was a, I remember it being two things simultaneously. A big blow because, oh crap, now what? And surprisingly, a big relief. Like my first... Just like in that fire truck when I was like, oh, I'm going to die. Nope. Instantly, almost simultaneously. No, I'm not. I had, what am I going to do now? And right behind it, oh, thank God. And this is when my, and I didn't know it at the time, but my mental injury was speaking up. Like, I, I can't, I can't go back. Like, that's, I can't do that again. I can't go back. I can't be in that fire truck again. So I was medically retired and I spent probably the next, the next few years were pretty rough as far as, you know, I still didn't recognize I had a mental injury. Um, I specifically told my psychiatrist, um, I didn't want that put down in my retirement package, um, because the stigmas back then was so real. Like there, you, you didn't tell your chief that you had a fear. You didn't tell your chief you were worried about this or that. You just did your job. You showed up and you, you did your job. And you dealt with that on your own time. And so, um, you know, in the end, um, I, I lost my career. Um, I ended up divorcing. Um, and it was, it was, and I still didn't have anything to kind of refocus myself on certainly not mental healing or, um, and so I just did what I knew how to do. And I, I pushed forward. Like I, I decided, well, I'll go be a paramedic or I'll go be a nurse or, you know, let's just keep one foot in front of the other and, and move forward. And then I was introduced to, um, an organization called the Phoenix Society. And, um, a couple years after I was hurt, uh, I went to their convention and it's a annual convention for burn survivors. And I was asked to attend by a, um, a 
doctor out of Kentucky, I believe. She's a psychiatrist out of, I think she's in Kentucky. And she was doing research on firefighters that had been burned. Because no one had really looked at the fire in the burn community um, in the burn medical world, no one had looked at firefighters that are trying to get back to what hurt them and what they go through and what their needs are. And so I was lucky enough to be on a um, focus group that was just starting to look at it. And this is a few years before the big push in my department with peer support, like you said, is a huge thing now, thank goodness. But um, this was my introduction to peer support. And I met other firefighters that were trying to get back to work or had been retired because of their injuries. And that was my first um, introduction to talking about it and the mental injury and PTSD. And so I was able to um, recognize that, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe I do have more healing to do and maybe I, I have... Um, I have some work to do. So that's that's what I did. When you were with the Phoenix Society, did you ever meet a firefighter called Mitch Dreyer? He lost an arm in a fire. So Mitch was, um, yes, Mitch was hurt the same year I was. Mitch was actually one of the people. He was on the panel, um, the first world burn I went to. He was on the panel of in the line of duty injuries. Um, and he was the person, and I remember asking a question of him. Everyone was kind of talking to the firefighters that made it back to work. And this is right before um, I had actually made it back to work, I think. And I remember asking him, like, what now? Because obviously he didn't make it back to work um, with his with his injury. Um, what now? Because I didn't, I was afraid to even ask what else is there. Like, I didn't even want to ask myself that because there was nothing else and so yeah Mitch, Mitch I'm actually um Mitch is one of my original firefighters yeah Mitch was my very first guest on on the podcast and I met him doing an Ido Patel class which is a, a movement practice class and you know we were all struggling to do these movements with one arm I mean excuse me with two arms and then there's Mitch crushing it with, with his single arm so yeah an amazing amazing person yeah, Mitch and his and his wife and his kiddos—they're—they're—they're amazing. They're—they're they're just amazing people. And his story and their story of of you know the what now or the what's next. Um, yeah, I don't know where I'd be without people like him or other firefighters from from uh, the Phoenix Society, their program there. That they they they're the reason I am where I am. Yeah, that's brilliant. Now, you going back to your point before, though, so there you were, you know, wayward, and then you found the fire service. So many people struggle um, when they retire, when they transition out of a, a career, because that becomes their identity. And with your story, it seems like it's really, really in ground, because that was the kind of thing that, that saved you, as it were. So as far as that tribe and identifying as a firefighter, was that a struggle for you as well when you were basically forced to retire? Um, yeah. So I still, to this day, like, I mean, I, I'm a strong believer in everything happens for a reason. And as I, I struggled with what's next and I was trying to hold on to that career or some aspect of that career, you know, like I said, okay, I'll be a nurse or I'll be a paramedic. 
um, I kept getting asked, you know, what my critical incident was not just, you know, big news in San Diego. It, it made national news and um, a lot of different people were reaching out and wanting to hear the story. And there was a lot of interviews and media. And so I got really good at kind of just talking about what happened always with in the back of my head, please don't ask how I started. Like, <laughs> don't, can't talk about, um, but, um, and, and my, my local burn Institute, um, who, who was also huge in, in helping get me back on my feet. Um, you know, they would ask me to come speak at fundraisers, you know, try and get funds in to do, continue the services that helped me and my family. And I was, you know, of course, of course, whatever I can do, you guys helped me so much. Um, you know, they're the organization that sent me to World Burn, that hooked me up with Phoenix Society. You know, they paid for my mom's in and out parking at the hospital and, you know, whatever you guys, whatever I can do to help, for sure. So I got really good at, you know, going and speaking about what happened and what I needed and how they were there to give that to me. Um, and so, I would always feel so, I would have that sense of accomplishment again after I would go give one of these speeches and, you know, that fulfillment that I gave back, just like in the fire service, you know, when you have that really good call where you just really kicked ass and you really just helped somebody, that that's why we do what we do, that, that fulfillment we get. It's, you know, it's almost like a drug, like, yes, that's why... I, I'm away from, that's why I miss my kid's birthday. That's why I'm here on Christmas Eve because days like that make it worth it. And so I had that same fulfillment giving back to the, to the Burn Institute in the little ways that I could. And so I, I started to notice, um, I started to notice that, that that is, maybe that's my new purpose. Maybe these are the people I'm supposed to be helping now, you know, future burned survivors, future burned firefighters, you know, maybe this maybe these are my people's, you know, but by this time I did have a PTSD diagnosis. I did understand I had PTSD. It wasn't just, Oh, I'd been through some shit like, or, you know, it was a bad day. No, this, this was bigger and this was residual. And this was still with me four years later, whatever it was in that timeline. But, um, and so I, I figured out that first responders and burn survivors were the people I wanted to kind of make my new career helping. And so I went back to school. Um, I'm currently working on my doctorate now. Um, I went back to school with the hopes that, you know, maybe making it back to my department maybe someday or in some, you know, private capacity where I can help other first responders um, dealing with PTSD. And, And it started with, with peer support. And I, you know, I've been pretty active in, in, getting peer support and then trying now, you know, focusing on, on how to be that peer supporter um, because there's no better person to help you through something than somebody who's made it through it already. Be it, you know, been through prison, been through fire camp and now they want to do something like I did or, you know, been through burns and, you know, five years later still have to have a surgery, which is you know, I just had three surgeries this summer. Um, or it's a first responder who's, you know, dealing with PTSD and and not sure what life is life next. You know, I'm I'm all three of those people. So my hope is I can I can do that 
professionally next. Um, and, and it began with peer support. Yeah, well, and you'd be an absolute asset and for for the same reasons that you were nervous about coming on or the same reasons that are making you um, so valuable as as a member of, of, you know, the mental health community for us, our professions, because as you and I and most people listening to this know, if we'll just change avenues for a second, if you come in wearing spandex with your, you know, jazzercise certificate and say, all right, we're going to work out today. You're not going to get any buy-in because you don't know anything about what first responders do physically, you know, and it's the same with the mental health thing. You know, who, who the fuck are you? Who are you to tell me, you know, you know what I say? Oh, you're a firefighter. Oh my God. You know, you, you were at a, you know, a, a fatal fire and you rescued someone. Oh, you, you spent some time in prison. Okay. Now, now you got me. Now I'm going to listen. And, and, some people might say that's sad. I don't think it is. I think that you have to understand the same way as I'm never going to understand what it's like to be in combat as, as a, as a soldier. I'm never, because I never was. So, you know, we have our, our professions. And I think what makes it so powerful for you and, and there's other people being on the show have done the same thing. They started as, as a firefighter or a police officer and they transitioned into the mental health side. You are the diamonds in the rough that we need because you do understand. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, that's, we do that throughout life. You know, you, your car breaks down. The first thing we do now, I mean, now it's social media age, is, is we ask somebody or we go on Facebook, hey, anybody know a good repairman? Because this just happened to me. It's, whenever something happens, we, we look for people that have been there and, and had a successful outcome with that problem. And it's the same, it's the same thing with mental health or, or with, you know, people getting out of prison and, and wanting to do good, you know, it's like, who, who's who been in these shoes and who knows what I'm going through, what I'm going to face and, and has successfully, you know, managed it or, you know, been through it. It's, it's a real difference between sympathy. I think anybody can sympathize um, with, with what different people have been through in their life, but it's those people that can empathize with it. Um, that can really put themselves in that person's, and you don't have to go through something to be able to empathize with somebody, but it's so much, I can tell you, it's, it's a lot easier to empathize when you know exactly what hurdles are coming their way or what they've been through or what got them there in the first place. And, and, and I've been lucky enough to have all the right people around me and all the right organizations and support. And my department's been amazing. Um, I've had every tool at my, beck and call to make me successful and so um i want to help other people you know get there too yeah and, and i have to underline that your department has been amazing because again to 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 say it again to oversee the time in prison and see that the value is in the fact that you were an amazing firefighter and therefore will continue to be an amazing firefighter i think that's incredible so i want to give you know cdf or cal fire kudos for that because that's something that other counties and cities should really start looking at yeah i know a few years ago i had heard it was the program was on the chopping block um or possibly on the chopping block and i remember thinking no god no this is this is what you're doing right state of california like don't don't pull this program and i remember thinking years ago god i would love to go back into the prison and or into the fire camp and just tell these girls and guys, you know, hey, 
this, there's more out there. There's more you can do this. This, I was you, you know, before I had the title, um, college graduate, before I had the title, you know, mother, wife, firefighter, EMT, before I had any of those titles and those accolades. And, um, I had the title inmate, inmate firefighter. Um, I, I was you and you can do anything. I mean, it's going to be hard. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be people that are absolutely going to look at you and just see that number. And be like, nope, that's all you are. That's all you'll ever be. But that's not true. Like, it's it's up to you. Yeah. Now, have you, you say that you'd love to. Have you, you have been back to the camps, haven't you, and actually spoken to some of these classes? Is that right? Um, I, I have not officially. Um, I remember... Um, talking to different crews I would see on fires, you know, captains, crew captains would say, Hey, would you mind, you know, talking to my crew or whatever, briefly on base camp at lunch or whatever. Um, but ironically, and again, back to everything happens for a reason, just before you reached out to me, um, about this podcast, I was approached by a young, um, law student who also happened to be um, a Cal Fire seasonal once upon a time. And he had um, done a project, a presentation about the Innocence Project to his law school. And it was a big hit and um, he was now gonna do it. He had done it in a class and the school had asked him to do it in a broader forum. And so he had asked um, me, myself, and an organization he had heard of, I don't know, if Innocence Project to heard of them, or he had, I don't know who knew who, but um, if I would come and talk to the law students about my experience in the camps and what I've done and yada, yada. And while I was there, I met um, some people from a project um, that uh, they're called the FFRP. And, and what they did, it was just two guys who... Um, who got out of fire camp, got hired with the Forest Service, and he said, you know, in their garage, hey, we should help other people do this. Like, we can do it. Other people can do it. And so they started this forestry and fire recruitment program, um, just kind of helping people that were just like us. You know, here's the test you need to go take. Here's the schooling you should maybe go do. Here's the certification you're going to need. Um, and it kind of just snowballed and grew from there. And so I, when I sat on this panel with them, I was like, oh my God, you are exactly what I privately said to myself. Oh, I wish I could go back and just kind of tell my story and what I did and help the next me. Um, and so I've just recently, um, touched base with them and, and they just got a grant from the state of California to fund their goals. Um, and, and they have the lofty goal of making it to every fire camp in the state by the end of the year and kind of um, doing just that, going in and, and helping these guys and gals with whatever's next. Like their goal is for the future firefighter, but for anybody who just needs a hand, you know, with, with what's next, be it, how do I get my social security card or how do I sign up for school or whatever the case may be. Um, that's, so I'm really excited to actually get started with them. I just submitted my paperwork to to be approved to go into the camps and i'm hoping to hear shortly that uh 
I, I can get in there and, and do that. That's brilliant. Uh, so many people that have come on here already served and obviously yeah, those those gentlemen have and, and you have and Navy SEALs and police officers and all these other people I had and it it has me in awe that then they go, All right, now now what can I do? You know, and they find areas where highly funded organizations are totally dropping the ball and these men and women they go, All right, well well we're gonna fix it then. And this is, you know, it sounds like, like I said, going back, sounds like CDF is already doing things well. You know, the state of California is doing some things very well. But to bolster that and put more of a human face on, you know, connecting the dots with uh, empowering these men and women in these camps to be like, no, you can. You don't have to wonder if you're going to go back to doing whatever, you know, unlawful practices you were doing before. Here's how we can get you directly into this career and that's it you'll be a firefighter the rest of your life you won't need to worry about how am i going to pay the bills or child support or any of the things that possibly got you in trouble in the first place yeah how to just or even it's just how to utilize these skills that you were just taught and put into practice for the last two years of your life like the momentum let's take that momentum with you as soon as you pass that gate and and keep moving the right direction with it Brilliant. Well, I'll, I'll put the link to the Forestry Fire and Recruitment Program on the webpage of this episode, jamesgearing.com. Um, speaking of prisons, though, I think a, a good way to kind of put a bow on the main part of this interview is the pardon. So tell me about that. Oh. Well, yeah, that's how you found me, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, I like I said earlier in, in the podcast, um, I've done all I could till today <laughs> to distance myself from that part of you know that little but minor detail of my story because I mean it's I mean come on it's it's while I wouldn't be who I am or where I am or have what I have without it it's still not something you know I'm holding a banner like hey this was me like this is where I got my start this is the kick in the ass I needed it's just, I mean, there's, there's people who are going to see this, um, and just be like, what? And and that's all they're going to remember about me. Like, that's all they're going to hear is this person that they've known for the last 20 years. Like, wait, you were an inmate? Like, and maybe that's just my own fear. Maybe, maybe they're not, maybe it's going to be all positive, but it's just, it's, if I judge myself on it, you know, I, so I just imagine other people do. So, um, it's kind it's, it wasn't easy to come on today. Like I, I had such anxiety about it. I didn't sleep last night. I, I think we were texting at three in the morning, my time. I'm like, ah, I don't think I'm going to do it. Um, because of that, like stigma is real, whether it's mental health or past problems or whatever it is, you know, I used to, you know, I can imagine somebody's like, yeah, I got arrested five times for doing drugs. And now I want to go, you know, be a nurse. Like, no, you can't. You're a drug addict. No, I, I did have a problem. But, you know, I've done A, B, C, D, E, F, G, not just A, B, and C. I've done all these things to separate, move forward from that, take that experience and turn it into a positive. But that's all they're going to see. It's like, nope, you did this once. Too bad. So I don't want that for somebody else. And it's hard. It's not, it's not easy. No, but I mean, as we said before we start recording, you know, the, I, what I've seen with the mental health side is, as you said, you know, 10 years ago, it was pure stigma, you know, and it was, you know, rub some dirt and it stopped being a pussy, 
you're being weak, if you can't handle it, McDonald's hiring, all this other bullshit that you'd hear. And then I have seen the same people that spouted that turn around and go, you know, I was wrong. And then kudos to them again for having the courage and honesty to say I was wrong. But we realize that. And I think that that's what needs to happen with, you know, with, with a lot of, of crime, a lot of, you know, addiction and things like that is understanding that these are, you know, mental health issues, lack of parenting. I mean, all these, all these factors, none of them are down to one, but these are, I always like to point out, these are kids. These, these were toddlers running around, chasing a ball, giggling, laughing at one point. None of them said, one day I want to get locked up. That's my ambition. You know, so it's it's a product of all these different things. And the same way they were led down a path, they can be led back out as well. But if there's stigma, you're blocking that very thing. You are part of the problem. So, you know, if anyone is judging him, that that's on them. You know, that's that that's a mirror to your soul. If you're walking around judging everyone else. But I think that what you're going to find is the other 98 percent of the population are going to be inspired by it. Because we all know, like I said, if we look in our hearts, that we could all have been arrested for something. Whether you had one too many drinks when you drove home, you know, or shoplifted like I did when I was in high school age. You know, everyone could have us, you know, each of us could have been, you know, some sort of criminal action for something we did. Speeding, whatever. And so then to walk around judging other people is disgusting. There are some crimes and some things that are done that are totally different tier and i'm not including those but the average person so that's why on this show i discuss you know drug policy and and, and look at it from a way of improving healthcare. you know the, the food in schools the prison system all these things that if you reverse engineer how can we prevent it and then when it happens how can we get people back on the straight and narrow and this is exactly you know why your story is so important and that that blip was just it i mean your prison story is very very small but i think it's an important part of the story because look at that giant rest of your your life story that's all because you were in an environment that set you up for success that second time and then you took ownership of your life and then those two combined got you where you are today yeah, that's very true. The part and, and the pardon, I was, you know, that was years of a lot of paperwork and a lot of no's. And, you know, there was a change in administration. So I was about to get a pardon. And then the governor, we got a new governor. And so I had to start all over. And, you know, a lot of things that could have tripped me up. You know, I had to fly to Sacramento. Oh, Sound of Freedom's flying over. I live <laughs> next to a, the Marine base. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I had to fly to, to Sacramento and, and, and tell my story to the board. And, um, you know, that was very humbling and very just like, ah, oh, here we go again. Um, and, and when I got the pardon, you know, this was, I want to say 14 years later, um, I, I was like so excited that, yeah, I put that nail in that coffin and that, that door was closed. It was done. I had officially moved on from that little blip. And then, of course, within hours, I had reporters at my door. And, and for the same story, you, that's how you found me. Um, you know, hero firefighter. And I'm doing air quotations because I hate that title. Um, <laughs> we all do. <laughs> hero firefighter gets governor's pardon. I was like, shit, no. Here, oh, no, I got to explain. I just felt like it tarnished 
everything that I had worked so hard for to to move the right direction and and you know all that I you know all the schooling and the speeches and I just felt like everyone was gonna like all the good I had done was just undone in a snap of a finger or knock on the door by the reporters and and I wouldn't even give comments I was like nope not gonna answer the door I like hid in my house and I was like oh god they were following my kids to school and I just thought it was such a negative thing at the time and then I finally was like well there's no running from this I might as well tell somebody something and I granted one interview and I was like okay please go away please go away quick please go away fast um I didn't want to embarrass my kids I didn't want to have to explain what 19 year old Brooke did to to my children um I just wanted to forget about it. I wanted it gone. Like, can we just focus on the rest? And so, um, again, it was not, it's not easy to talk about. It's not easy to, to forgive 19, 20, 21 year old Brooke. Like you big dummy. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, I, I just got to tell myself, you know, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have these four amazing kids I have. I wouldn't have had this amazing career I had. I wouldn't be in this position to possibly help future future me, whether it's future me on the wrong, dating the wrong guy, future me joining the fire service, future whatever, whoever that future me is, whoever you are who's listening and needed to hear this, you know, I recognize and this is, this is for them. Yeah. No, and I think it's, it's incredible. And, you know, again, you can't become Scarlett O'Hara without some adversity. You know, you just not. You might have had an idyllic, you know, upbringing, but would you have become that independent figure that you yearned to be as a child? And you know, the universe, God, can be interesting with the scenarios they come up with, but that was it. You know, and I think that you should, you should be proud. That's the next step: is to be proud of your story because it doesn't define you. That moment, you're not. You know, there shouldn't be any shame in that the 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 pride should be in in having that blip and then and learning from it and growing from it and and now inspiring all these other people and letting them know that it's okay to make a mistake we all do but that does not define you and look where i am today yeah you know i heard i heard once you know um no one gets through this life unscathed you know we, we're all gonna have bumps in the road um it's it's what we do with that, you know, right along with Scarlett O'Hara around the same age, I read the poem Invictus. Um, and that really, that has stuck with me just as much as, as dear Scarlett has, um, you know, and there's a line in that poem that says my head is bloody, but, but unbowed. Like I'm, and that's just kind of what have gotten me the drive to keep going. I mean, I come from a line of very strong, independent women. Um, so that has been a big help. Um, but yeah, that's just, there was there was no other choice for me but to move forward. Like there was no going backwards. Yeah, it reminds me of um, uh, you know an image I saw on on social media a while ago. I shared a couple of times, and I don't know if it's even true, but it's it had this little blue pot, and there was all this like gilded lines, these golden lines on it, and it said something to the effect of, you know, in Japan, if a pot oh breaks, they mend yes. they mend it with the gold. And it's and it's yes, true. Yes. So you'd be proud of your scars. Yeah, that is. Um, you know, it's funny. I heard that on. I have a book. I'm actually. I just pulled it out right now that I write stuff down in, and um, 
I wrote down in Japan, when a piece of pottery breaks, some patterns repair, some potters repair the cracks with gold. The potter sees the repairs as something beautiful. They know that the unexpected happens, change happens. No one gets through this world in one piece. That doesn't have to diminish us. The cracks are part of our history. They will always be with us. The cracks make us better, make us stronger, make us something new. And you're going to laugh where I actually wrote all that, <laughs> where I got that from. It was from a Grey's Anatomy episode. Oh, really? <laughs> watching Grey's Anatomy. And she always has this like voiceover in the beginning and in the end. And that was Meredith Grey's voiceover at the end of this episode that was so poignant to me. Like, oh, that's me. Like, I have lots of cracks. One very giant crack. Um, and, and, you know, I filled it in with gold. It, it's, it's going to be fine. I'm stronger. I'm smarter because of it. Not because I stayed polished and perfect all my life where I grew up polished and perfect. Like I have these flaws and I have these mistakes and I, I have positive things that I did with them. So love it. Love it. Actually, I don't my- know. <laughs> that's, that's so funny isn't it my wife just yeah. bought me uh, my favorite piece of art and I had the artist on the show Fabio Napoleone um, and he has a character um, that looks like a kind of um, kind of he's a stuffed it's hard to describe him a stuffed man figure you know like a ragdoll male and he's got like one button eye and one's missing and he's got all these stitches all over him and in this particular one, he's got his heart strapped to his back and, and, and he's got his hands up like a kind of old school boxer. Um, and it's the, the piece is called Only a Fool Would Try. But again, his all his art, his little girl had um, heart surgery when she's tiny. And so all his art has these, these characters with stitches, like very obvious stitches. And it's the same thing to me with that, you know. You should be able to look at that other person with with the gold gild or the stitches on them and see you know, the similarities, not be, you know, um, scared of that, but look at someone else and have that kind of me too feeling like, oh, you, you've seen through, you know, you've been through some shit too. I get it, you know, and that should bring people together rather than this ridiculous place we found ourselves where some people seem to think that they're walking around holier than thou. And then this, this judgmental side happens, even though from my perspective, it appears like, most of the religions prophets that they talk about in the holy books talk about forgiveness and acceptance and compassion but then you know society then seems to do something very different so yeah i i couldn't agree more with that whole concept and i think we should be proud of our scars yeah my my boyfriend um i ask him you know i bug him all the time why do you why do you love me like i have all this baggage i have all these scars i have all this and I just get very girly on him and I just want him to tell me why he loves me. And he always gives me the same answer. And I used to, you know, tell him, I want a, I want a cheesier answer. And he always tells me, it's your perseverance. That's what attracted me. That's what I love about you. That's what I'm like, oh, I wanted to hear something cheesy, but okay, whatever. And I brush it off. Um, and then I had, to, I had to, he's like, stop doing that. Like, stop discrediting what you've accomplished. Stop you know, turning a blind eye to where you were and where you are. And um, 
you know, and like you said, if people are going to judge you on that, then those people don't matter. Like their opinion, everyone has one, an opinion, not everyone's matters. So um, I think, I, I think you're absolutely right there. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I, I think it's fantastic. And I think that what you said, though, about what your boyfriend was saying is something that a lot of us struggle with as well. Like, especially in our profession, it is a very giving profession. Sometimes you also need to take a moment, look in the mirror and, and you know, acknowledge yourself and your own strengths. Because it's, I mean, like you said, we don't refer, refer to ourselves as heroes. We hate being told thank you and, you know, all that stuff. But sometimes you do need to acknowledge what you've been through and, and, you know, allow yourself a little mental pat on the back. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just doing our job. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions because I know we've been chatting for almost two hours now. That's on, on recording another 25 minutes on top of that. Um, so the first one I love to ask people, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed or something completely different. Uh, well, obviously, Gone with the Wind. Everyone should read Gone with the Wind. Um, Miss Scarlet, there. Um, you know, I've there was a book that I read in Fire Camp that has stuck with me, and it was called The Power of One. Um, and it was about a young, um, a young boy in South Africa, and he befriends. And he wants to be a boxer and he befriends um, a gentleman in prison. And he's this famous pianist from Germany. And he's, um, this is during um, the World War and, and he's actually in prison for being German. Um, but he's also a famous pianist. So he's given like all these um benefits i guess he, he has his own cell and he has his piano and he plays for the warden and this young south african kid um befriends a boxer who's in prison and he teaches him boxing and while there he meets this pianist and it's just this lovely story about you know the past and and the present and what we can accomplish so that's a book that's really um stayed with me and then there's another book uh, you should have prepared me. It's I read it um, in my undergrad, I think, or maybe it was during my master's program. Let me see if I have it here. Um, it's again about a survivor of the Holocaust, I want to say. Oh, what is it called? You're going to have to look it up and, and put it on, <laughs> put a link to it. Um, it's not Man's Search for Meaning, is it? Is it Mendel? Is that the author? Uh, Victor Frankl is the author of that ben one. Frankel, that's it. That is the book. The amazing that's book. Amazing book. That it was in my undergrad because I remember sitting at SDSU over the patio and it was one of our required reads. And um, I missed class because I just sat there because I'm, I'm a bit of a procrastinator. And so I was reading it before class. I was trying to like catch up real fast. And I ended up missing the whole class because I sat on the patio overlooking uh san diego up there at sdsu and was just blown away by that book great it is book. incredible now you said about the power of one that's one of my favorite movies ever um i think if i remember <laughs> rightly morgan freeman played the boxer um, oh yes okay well i i haven't seen the movie but the book the book was amazing yeah i would recommend the movie i don't know how it compares to the book but the movie was so good i can't imagine it 
didn't do it justice. But um, yeah, very, very powerful movie as well. Um, all right. So the next one, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions? And it doesn't have to be specifically about the fire service. It can be anyone on planet Earth. Anybody on planet Earth. So there is, there's a psychiatrist who, um, she writes, she writes novels. She also writes a book called How to Love a Firefighter and How to Love a Cop. I've had her on already. Shut up. Yes. Ellen Kirschman. Yes. Yes. Oh, her book is right next to me. Literally. <laughs> um, well, she's fantastic. Um, she actually, in, uh, during my master's program, one of the required books was her book. I was like, oh my gosh, this is hilarious. Um, who else? The gentleman from FFRP, um, he'd be a great, more in-depth um, guy perspective, I suppose. The one who he started the, um, came through the camps and, and worked with Forest Service. I think he's still on the job, actually. Um, his name is Brandon Smith. Uh, who else? Yeah, they're the top two that come to my Brilliant. my mind. Okay, two two great suggestions. Thank you. All right. So then the last thing before we can kind of go over where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Oh, self care. I'm horrible at it. Um, I preach it all day long. I have. Well, my daughter's obviously older now. She's 19, but I um. I have three little boys now, so my hobbies are literally whatever their hobbies are or and or driving them there. Um, but I do still, um, like I just recently got approved to, um, I hope this podcast doesn't mess that up. I got approved to go into the burn unit as a volunteer. I had to, I finally got the courage to do my first background check. Even 20 years later with a pardon, I was still worried. Um, so I'm going to start going into the burn unit. I signed up to do peer support, but however it happened, I ended up, they thought I was there to volunteer in the unit. And so now I've signed up for both. So once a week, I'll be going into the burn unit to help out. Um, however they need me, run labs, whatever it is, I'm assuming. Um, but I don't, I still see... Um, I go to peer support meetings. That's kind of my self-help, my self-care, just to recheck in with me. There are things that, um, you know, I still struggle with. I'm just like a burn injury, a mental injury, um, PTSI, as they kind of like to call it now. Um, it's It stays with you. Like, it, it there's highs and there's lows, and you can't ride either of them. That's a very true saying. Um but there's there's stresses in my everyday life that re-trigger those those things, which I think a lot of us do. You know, uh, Freud had something there with the whole childhood issues. But um, so I try and make sure I go check in with peer support, find a meeting um, for first responders, uh, and other than that, just kind of my everyday everyday life is just is. Just being a mom, taking care of my kids, taking care of my dad. Brilliant. So your dad's still doing well? Dad, um, so yeah, I've been still taking care of my dad. Um, still a daddy's girl. 
Um, we actually just had to place him on hospice a few months ago. Um, so, but he's in home hospice. So I have, again, he's a, he's a vet also. So I have lots of resources and lots of support. And my mom is still a block away. Um, and, and my boyfriend is a huge help with him and the kids. And, um, so we're hoping he's, he's going to hang around for a while. He seems to always beat the odds. We've always teased he's going to outlive all of us. Um, he's had a few more strokes. He's had a, he has a very serious heart condition now. Um, but, uh, yeah, my mom calls him the, the energizer battery just keeps going and going. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, especially with the home hospice, uh, I actually had a, a gentleman, um, Dr. BJ Miller on, who's a palliative care physician and, you know, to, to, to be able to create an environment that's again, enabling someone in hospice to thrive, you know, to, to enjoy each day that they have on, on this planet, I think is great. So for him to have you around and be able to be at home is definitely going to, going to be a much nicer thing for him than being in some sterile hospital. Oh yeah. The, you know, the, the nurse that suggested, actually actually suggested palliative and we ended up going with, because of a Kaiser snafu, whatever that never happened. And we ended up just going straight to hospice with the, um, after talking to some people, um, he has, he's done a 180. Every nurse that comes out, they're like, Oh my God, he's doing so well. But I, I, you're absolutely right. You always, in my experience, he has always done better at home. And, you know, right now, if I went out there, he's watching wrestling, I'm sure. And as soon as I pick up my six-year-old from school, he'll be in there watching wrestling with them with his little, you know, action figures and, and just, you know, being that young life in front of my dad and, they're just they they crack me up they're hilarious together <laughs> brilliant well just one more thing before we let you go then when if people want to reach out to you online what are the best places to find you well unfortunately you can google my name and i'm just all over um <laughs> that story is never gonna leave me well actually um, carrasco you're not very I'll, evident anymore so the name change has definitely helped oh well till now Thanks. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm on social media. Um, uh, Brooke Carrasco. I mean, you can probably Google that. I'm on, you know, I'm on Facebook and I'm on um, Instagram. Um, so I'm, I think we even have mutual friends on Facebook, so they can probably click away and find me pretty easily. But um, yeah, if anyone wants to, private message me or whatever i'm completely fine with that brilliant well brooke again i just want to say thank you so much i know it took a lot of courage i know you know you were you were worried about this um i know 100 percent that this is gonna you know touch so many people out there and they're gonna be inspired by your story and that's it um but uh you know again it's me asking someone else to tell their story and you know it's there's not much for me to 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 risk so i appreciate you being so courageous and so transparent and and you know putting your story out there for everyone to hear yeah well it's out there now so there you go <laughs> <laughs>